Guru Nation, welcome to episode 772 of Random Musings from the Clinical Trials Guru. In this podcast, I interview David LaHaye. He's a someone that I've known since before he was a site owner. He used to be a consultant or uh, a client of my consulting company uh, when he was getting started, probably his first three years. Um, and David's uh, also a SOS panelist, but he's turned into uh, five sites in four years. And in this interview, we kind of prep for the Save Our Sites panel on industry relationships with an emphasis on bringing trials to your site. But the interview kind of shifted, and this is why I like doing these things impromptu, into site management. How do you manage all the inner workings of a site and how he does it in particular, which is pretty interesting. Uh, so everybody go connect with David. Link to his LinkedIn is in the show notes. Really quick, a uh, quick thank you to Anato, our sponsor. They help make getting studies for sites easy and free. You do need therapeutic area expertise, but it's an amazing tool, easy to use. Link in the show notes, go get it. Also link in the show notes to Creo. It is my e-source, my e-reg, my CTMS, my auto-texting, my e-consent. It has helped to make our lives easier as site directors and coordinators. Uh, my coordinators love it. Uh, the caveat is they don't know anything else. They all started on Creo, but I've used everything. I've used paper. Um, I've used, I've played with other e-source systems in the past, but Creos just seems to be the one that I like that works. It works for me and my needs. Check out Creo in the show notes. And with that being said, I hope you get something out of this interview with David. I think it's his first appearance. Live, live, live. We are live with David LaHaye. David Look, I'll just start the show this way, all right? He's one of the smartest people I talk to. I told you this before we started recording. Uh, I've had the pleasure of having numerous conversations with you, probably more than two dozen over the three years. We got to know each other during COVID. That's right. And um, you're going to be on the SOS panel. So we'll preface it with this is like a panel prep. Uh, that I'm doing with my panelists, but David's a serial site owner. So that means not just one, not just two, not just, well, three. Yeah, you've got not even more than three. So that's what serial entrepreneur means, not um, the cereals that you eat. <laughs> he studies on those too, uh, but he's one of the smartest dudes I know. He comes from an academic background and he could have gone the route of being a professor. Like, this is how smart this dude is. Your nickname should be The Professor. If you don't have a nickname yet, uh, I'll give you that nickname right here. The Professor. I've never told you this, Dan, but I actually worked uh, another company that I worked at. Um, we actually, we launched the very first uh, commercially available human exome, and that was my nickname in the launch team. Really? So, you already had that nickname. Amazing. I already had that nickname. <laughs> so. It's a fitting nickname because I just... Yeah brought it up like so that yeah. there no wonder uh other people feel the same way as i do but you're one of the smartest dudes i've wow. talked to um you approach side ownership with like scientific rigor uh and your questions i knew you would be successful almost instantly because of the type of questions you asked and they're very different than the traditional 
questions oh how much do you get and what do studies pay and all that you know which is important to know also but yours were like a levels deeper and i knew you had lasting power and you definitely did because now you're on what your fourth site or uh, fifth site, actually fifth. Yeah. <laughs> in three years or four years now yeah four years wow so you're doing more than a site a year I think it's been accelerating uh, more <laughs> recently, right? When you have more resources, when you have more experience, when you have more relationships, everything just gets easier. So I look at it in terms of you're moving a flywheel, right? Um, I don't know if you remember these old engines from the you know, 20s and 30s and 40s where they'd have this big heavy flywheel and you'd push the flywheel and it would first go very slowly and then you push it again and it'd go a little more quickly and you push it again and all of a sudden the engine fires up and it starts spinning like crazy. Uh, this is, um, you know, it's also described as like snowball effect, right? It's like snowball, um, yeah. as long, you know, as you're, if you, as long as you don't give up, if you keep learning and you have that humility to recognize that you're not perfect, you're going to make mistakes and you're going to be wrong. Like that's, uh, I think that's important. And another key uh, takeaway is that uh, if you can, if you can, if you can be somebody that doesn't know, or that isn't the idea person, that all of your ideas are, you know, your own and your brain is phenomenal. Cause you know, people can get, uh, and me as well can get really, um, uh, can just fall in love with how we think and our ideas and everything. But if you can give credit to other people for their accomplishments and you can take, uh, take a, a methods and processes and ideas that other people have put in the work to fully flesh out and to fully develop and just apply those into your own life and into your own business then and you don't care about getting the credit for them and being recognized as this really uh you know incredible uh, thought uh, thought leader i feel like you can go really far that way because i can only think of a couple of things at a time and really develop a, a phenomenal system but as long as you're constantly networking and and developing, uh, you know, developing uh, your relationships, and you're doing this with a bunch of people who are all working on the same thing, and you can just take the, you just take all of these things that they're working on and all of these great concepts and apply it into your own lives, and that accelerates your learning uh, dramatically. I like how you're um, applying advanced calculus into this interview because <laughs> you're embedding, you're integrating relationships, which is. <laughs> Topic of our panel, industry relationships. Sure. And so you've you've mentioned that word at least three times already. And it's very easy for some to maybe hear that and think, okay, that's just a cliche, you know. Mm -hmm. But it, like the more I've done this, the more I realize that is like the main weapon, not yeah. a platitude. And I've been doing this 18 years and you've, you've been doing, you were able to do in like four years, what took me like 18 years to do. I think I'm on. That's because you didn't have a Dan Sparrow to follow. <laughs> there was no, there was like center watch was yeah. like the source back then. And that was like basically publishing books full of platitudes. Yeah. But what do you think about relationships in the context of building your site? And specifically, like getting studies, because that's like what it boils down to, really, is how yeah. do we get studies? So let, let me backtrack, because there was a, a thing that I, I think would be really valuable to unpack 
um, the approach that I took when I first started my, you know, first started, like started my first clinical research site is, you know, I jumped on LinkedIn. I think LinkedIn is an invaluable tool that if you're not on it, you really should get on it. And I think we're in the prime of LinkedIn. Like this is peak yeah. LinkedIn right now. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I mean, there's so many people that are on LinkedIn and uh, just four years ago, maybe one in one in 10 people at, you know, sponsors were on LinkedIn. We're probably around 50% right now. Uh, I yeah. always, when I'm communicating with people, I always check to see if they're on LinkedIn and add them if, if I'm not. Uh, but I, I took the approach like um, maybe like a management consultant would. Uh, and so before I did anything, I was just on LinkedIn and I found every single site now, uh, site owner um, that would talk to me. And I just had an interview with them. And, and uh, actually, uh, you introduced me to a whole bunch of other people. And, and, and what happens is that everybody's different. Like everybody has uh, like their own little recipe for success. Everybody has their own little way to uh, explain things, but, uh, or to explain their, you know, successes or their failures or, uh, and whatnot. But you do find certain things, um, you, you see certain things end up, uh, uh, end up being shared with everybody, you know, like certain behaviors, certain routines uh, tend to be uh, consistent along a, a lot of successful people. So those stand out when you add, when you start talking with uh, dozens of people and then it becomes really easy to like, what should you select for? Well, maybe something that someone does is specific to what they're doing, but if this person is successful, they do it. This other person is successful and they do this and this other person and two dozen more, it's probably something you should be doing as well. Uh, there's a concept. Are you familiar with the Anna, Anna Karenina principle? No, no. So it's a Silicon Valley uh, phrase. That's uh, the, the the story or the book by Leo Tolstoy, Anna Karenina. It starts out and I'm going to botch this because I didn't write it down or anything. And I wasn't planning on talking about Anna Karenina, but um, it starts out. All happy families are happy for the same reason. All unhappy families are unhappy for many different reasons. And what that means is that and how you can apply that to site ownership is that you can screw up a company a myriad of different ways. But yeah. there's but there, there's generally a couple of things that, that a couple of principles that you want to follow in order to be successful. So all happy families are happy for the same set of reasons. It's not like it's just random. It's like the happiness is a decide is a decision. It's a choice, right? Success is a decision. Success is a choice. And so um, and so once you put together your order of operations and you like put together your plan. Those, those things don't necessarily have to be all of yours. You're probably in, a, in an industry like clinical research that's just been around forever, that there isn't a whole lot of innovation. Um, mm -hmm. I found that, um, I found that uh, coming up with new ideas is generally not the way to go. What you want to do is you want to find out what works, do that, set up a plan, and then continuously hammer on what, you know, what works and, uh, and, you know, like that flywheel scenario is when you're doing it more, the longer you're in the game, the more opportunities are going to come your way, the more relationships you're going to build, which is going to further give you more and more opportunities and the more capabilities you're going to develop, which is going to expand uh, your, uh, which is going to expand what um, uh, your options in the future. I like that Anna Karen and I, I probably should get the book, but I got the gist of it from what you Said. Yeah. I mean, I did a video this morning on somebody asked me to do a video on and they asked the perfect question. It was so vague. Uh, 
advice for a site director. It was like perfect wow. podcast. Yeah. Oh man, I got. So I I went on a 25 minute like just solo pod and I got into like entropy and how it's a universal law that things yeah. will go towards chaos. Yeah. And you actually need to put energy into something to make it to bring order. Just like you yeah. said, there's a thousand ways to screw up a site and yeah. only like a few to make it successful, really. Yeah. It's the same thing. And that requires energy because entropy yeah. means everything goes to chaos naturally. Like you don't have to work very hard to screw up your site. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I love that anacron. And uh, I maybe not need to read it because I think I get the idea from what you just said. <laughs> yeah, I don't, the book isn't a business book, but it's a phenomenal book if you want to read it. It's like 800 pages, so you got to decide, you know, what the highest and best use of your time is. But, uh, uh, but absolutely, uh, I would, I, I do love uh, uh, Russian literature of that time, so I certainly am. Yeah, not they had to, they had to find beauty. They had to find beauty in the ugliness that was surrounding them. Yeah, and, so and that's what created like great literature of that era. Yeah, I. Um, uh, Dostoevsky is another, I guess, we're yep. track, but, uh, I, it, I find it hard to read Dostoevsky's writing because I just get so enraptured in the, uh, in the, the beauty of like, in the, in the, the weight of, of the, uh, of his writing, uh, that I forget who's saying it and I forget what the context is and everything. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, and, and then you have to think about like, this is also translated. I'm not reading it in the original Russian. Right. Anyway, I digress, but the well, principle is uh, absolutely an important. Uh, note. Well, I'm I'm like fascinated by how the universal law of entropy it relates to human interactions too, and mm -hmm. we're, we're going to get into that because you got to put work into your relationships. But a uh, LinkedIn user says, uh, "I love this strategy. When you are constantly developing relationships, you continues you continually make friends with best of breed, making your entire professional experience an ecosystem of." specialization so people are agreeing with you david and you've made oh. a career out of it with and you've hard to believe you've only been doing clinical research like for four years right you were doing academic work before that so i was um, if you if you rewind almost 20 years um, i started off doing like you know i was a essentially route to become a professor and the I was at uh, at university at the University of California at San Diego. I was earning a PhD, and it kind of like there was a, a a lot of different things happening at that time. I was really interested in this field of genomics, which is you know generally if you're doing a, an assay, you're testing one tiny one tiny thing. Like this one protein goes into the cell and goes to another uh, organelle and tickles something, and then something happens, right? But with genomics, what that opened up is the possibility to do tens of thousands of different assays at any given time. Um, and so this is all when the Human Genome Project is coming out and there's all this potential of like using all this massive amounts of information where you've got the information age impacting biology and medicine and everything that's going to come, uh, come downstream of that. Um, like I was extremely interested in that and I'm looking at the route of being a professor and I don't want to insult any professors here, but I saw it as like, okay, you become an assistant professor, then you get promoted to associate professor, then you become a full professor, and then you become a professor emeritus, you retire, then you die. And that seemed to be a little less uh, exciting than, you know, than just kind of going on my own and exploring different things that, that happened to find, that happened to be of interest to me. So I, um, uh, I 
after after graduate school, I uh, went into industry. I initially started off in bioinformatics. Uh, I moved uh, into like bioinformatics for sequencing. I, I took a couple of other jobs um, working within uh, working within the genomics industry, uh, a technology called microarrays that are often used also in you know mm -hmm. to uh, uh, as a further diagnose diagnostic potential, um, and as well as uh, pathology and and creating new pathology tests. So immediately prior to jumping into clinical research, what uh, what I was uh, what I was doing is I was setting up um, acad academic medical center research sites and. So mm -hmm. my clients were MD Anderson Cancer Center, Harvard Medical School, UCLA, Mayo Clinic, Johns Hopkins University. And uh, that's what really introduced me to everything that is post-clinical. Well, I don't know, I guess it's technically, you know, pre, you know, the physician. Yeah, because if you, if you think about it, right, like all of these medications, they start out like with a Petri dish and somebody with a pipette, you know, and writing a paper that is then taken by the pharma company. And then they, you know, they then they create the they create the drug to initially do to do the initial phase one, then phase two, then phase three testing. And I got introduced to that working with uh, clients of mine at MD Anderson and Baylor College of Medicine. So I became, I don't know if I can name drop on LinkedIn Live, I guess there's no. Uh, I know, yeah. So, <laughs> so but anyway, um, I just learned a lot from my clients and, you know, and a lot of them I know, you know, uh, you know, call friends uh, and, you know, advisors and mentors. So uh, as, as someone who's done, oftentimes we, like us side owners, mm -hmm. you know, us lowly side owners, <laughs> we get dismissed like there's there's different lenses to view us through a very popular lens from ivory tower viewing is there should be no such thing as private research they're in it just for the profits uh we're not prestigious i mean look at me i'm wearing camo with a hat <laughs> like i'm at a research clinic like it's easy to see how some will look down upon yeah this profession um the counter is like it's very rewarding i got to literally change lives of employees and patients in my community on a hyper local level yeah arguably more impactful than an amc might be able to do in the like in a larger reach yeah uh, as someone who's done both like you've kind of been in both worlds yeah how do you compare private site ownership to i guess the more prestigious type of research where you're actually creating the science, you're yeah. hypothesizing because as site owners, we just follow the protocols and then we execute. There's no real thinking about the science. I mean, you can, I've started getting into it personally just because yeah. I'm interested in it, but how do you compare? Cause you've done both. And then which one do you think you like better? So I think, uh, I mean, I like, that, that's a good question. I hadn't thought uh, through this, but a few things that pop into my head right now is I feel like you have a much closer connection to the patient. So if you're somebody that likes to uh, that that likes that patient interaction and that you know that uh, like seeing you know improving lives, then the you know this individual site owner is uh, is kind of the avenue to take with the academic research centers. 
uh, everybody is very, very specialized. And so, and so most of the time, like you'll have people whose their entire job is to accession a urine sample or to, you know, just do regulatory and like the coordinators won't actually have patient interactions. And so they build these beautiful factories of clinical research, but there isn't the same level of, you know, of, you know, of your patient comes here and, you know, by the time the patient finishes the trial, you know, their grandkids names and how many goals they scored in their peewee soccer. So uh, it really depends on what it is that you're, you're after. Um, and, and uh, but certainly you're not going to publish any papers if you own a clinical research site, right? The CTAs right. are pretty specific about that. You know, that's their property. You own no publishing rights. And again, it's in every contract. It's a non-negotiable, yep. at least as far as I'm concerned, uh, as far as I'm aware, yeah. you know, it's non-negotiable. <laughs> yeah. and, and I think you gave, uh, gave me a layup for, I think, a really important story. Um, with that, you're not going to have a whole lot of choices as far as what you do inside the academic medical center route. And I, you know, and we absolutely need academic medical centers. And I not I don't want to criticize them because there's also a whole lot there's a whole other um, there, there's a whole other world that would not be available if it weren't for uh, the existence of AMCs. But uh, during COVID. Uh, there were, it was pretty much top down from nearly every place that I was working with. So I was, a, I was working with these AMCs and setting up, you know, setting up their sites. And uh, they were, they just decided to shut down almost unanimously. Like there were very few AMCs that just said, hey, we're not stop, we're stopping our, our clinical research programs as of now until this COVID thing blows over and we know how to, how to, to, uh, um, how to uh, navigate it, right? And that's what gave me the clue to say, hey, if nobody's running these running trials to find antiviral medication that could be efficacious against COVID-19, then, you know, then maybe I should do that. So that's when I left my you know, full time employment and started a clinical research site. And I should also say um, uh, I have a, my partner at the time, Lee Eifler, I used to my partner, I shouldn't say at the time but you know we uh we started uh actually i guess two clinical research sites um one in detroit michigan and one in uh, phoenix arizona and uh what gave us the initial uh the initial uh i guess the initial uh, like platform was that we developed a patient recruitment apparatus from uh, from COVID-19 testing. So patients would come in for COVID-19 testing and we would recruit patients for COVID-19 clinical research trials to do that because the academic medical centers weren't actively like running those studies. And I felt like there's a, there's a need for that. You know, at the time there were, it was, there was a lot of news stories suggesting that the, the uh, death rate of, for COVID was in the double digits. And so uh, it's a, you know, pretty important time to, you know, just, you know, grab your, you know, grab your tools and run towards the fire and uh, help 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 the firemen put it out. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. And a big, big shout out to Lee. You guys simultaneously started it. Lee is a serial entrepreneur. Yes. I believe clinic, this these sites were like your first foray into like full blown just entrepreneurship, right? Yeah, that's right. That's what I was an employee up until 2020. So two completely different backgrounds, but successful uh and now each on your own as well right you have your site in mccallan lee has yeah. the site in phoenix and um you guys will both be sos 
and everybody go connect. I guess this is a good place to take a commercial break and say, look, there's only one day left for tickets. Like tomorrow it's done. Tomorrow is January 12th. Like we just had a meeting yesterday. The conference planner said we are, I'm physically going in there. Uh, this is Jed, by the way, not me. Uh, I'm the messenger. We're disabling ticket purchasing tomorrow. So get everyone in today. So I'll, I'll probably post a meme or two later uh, to get people going. And um, it's a good commercial break. But do you need industry relationships? Like, did you, were you as reliant on, in your career in academia, I feel like you can get away without having relationships or maybe they're not as useful. Am I wrong or? So like everybody is, everybody is so, I don't want to use the terminology pigeonhole because there are people that, you know, are overseeing everything. But for me, I was never, I was never that person who was like the, the Dean of research at a, at an academic medical center, but many of them, at least all that I know of, they actually do have a business development team. Uh, and so they're they're always getting leads as well, because you take a, a typical academic medical center and you look at the time horizons that they operate on. They're operating on hundreds of years. Right. Which is, I, I think that's something that a lot of people could operate <laughs> much better in their small businesses if they only operated on time. Horizons. I mean, pharmaceutical industry is barely reaching a hundred years old. Yeah. I think like right around now, the the pharmaceutical industry as a whole, is like a hundred years old maybe. So that's, that's crazy. Yeah. But if you think about it, if, uh, if you're at like Upjohn in the early 1920s, where are you going to go to for, (laughs) you know, like you look at Harvard university, it's been around since the 1600s, you know, many of these other places that's, you know, they've been around for a long time. So they're looking, um, they're looking ahead and, uh, and, you know, the pharmaceutical industry has been around for, let's say a hundred years or so. Uh, they've got 100 years of relationships. And so who are they going to go to? And, and anybody that's been in the industry for a while, they know if they've done a quality job, if they know if they under promise and over deliver, the same clients are going to come back to them over and over and over again. And so instead of getting in front of them, what you can do instead is simply building up your client basket. So, uh, and just to give you another a, a similar story for, um, for um, when, when I started the site in Detroit, um, I had a, a huddle with uh, my business partners. This was about two and a half years ago. And we kind of discussed that our, our goal was to um, become the best the favorite clinical research site for a certain sponsor. And this sponsor went from being uh, unknown to being a household name during, uh, you know, during uh, the you know COVID pandemic. So you probably figure out who I'm talking about. To figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> so choices. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, if you look at that, like that was the goal. That was two and a half years ago. At this point, we've got, you know, you can find on, on clinicaltrials.gov. We've been awarded, I think, our 10th or 11th study from that one sponsor. Wow. So that's the thing. If you're and, um, you know, if you are a uh, if you are a bespoke, customized, you know, vendor specifically to meet the needs of, you know, of a client, obviously they're going to be interested in you and they're going to be interested in giving you their attention. Now, 
how you get their attention, that's that's a different story, right? Because attention can go both ways. Like you can, there's positive attention and then there's like, you know, like you could light yourself on fire and run out in the middle of the road and there's no, you're going to get a lot of attention, but you're not going to get sure. anything from that. So what, you know, so my, my approach has always been to get, uh, like get a study. I, I'm not, uh, I don't much mind how, how to get it if you're on clinicaltrials.gov and you're just, you know, blasting out emails everywhere, or if you're going through vend or going through like a broker service, it's not, not none of those are my favorite ways to go. Or commercial break, going through DSCS and getting study leads from them and following through with with each of those. Those are all like as long as you get something. The most important thing is that the next step is that you is that you impress the study team and the sponsor. And for many studies, it is. Uh, uh, like you could be, you could become noticed if you recruit five or 10 or 20 patients to this trial. In fact, a lot of them, like if it's a study that has a hundred sites and, and they've got to recruit 800 patients, like you would be in the top, you know, top 10 sites. If you recruit 20 patients to a study. Oh, like yeah. so, I think yeah. on phase three studies, I think you'd be in the top 20% with just 10 patients. Yeah. So if you were to do something like that, if you were to get everybody's attention, if you're, uh, you know, if you're, um, you know, your investigator gets to go to the next investigator meeting and they call like they, you know, you know, <laughs> acknowledge him publicly or her publicly for the excellent work that their, their study team has done. Um, if you get to that point, like they're going to remember who you are and they're going to send everything they've got to you because they know you can do a good job doing that. And so I think that's a very important thing to 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 focus on is that if you get something, it's like you put, you know, you put all your lead down range on that opportunity, on that study and uh, and then do everything you can to impress that sponsor. Uh, and afterwards, they'll you know, they'll return the favor. You'll 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 be known to everybody in that study team. You can regularly um reach out and connect with each of those people, ask if you, they've got anything else in the pipeline, any other projects that they're working on, you know, the CTMs are valuable people to work, you know, to work with. And, and you're going to know those people and they're going to give you attention if you were a high performer for them. And so you keep nurturing those relationships and they're going to pay off. Now, uh, what's important to think of, because I know I spoke with a lot of clinical research sites when I was relatively naive um, as a site owner, and I noticed a lot of people, they, they kind of had this cycle. It's like they would get a trial and then they'd execute on the trial. As soon as they'd hit their, you know, their enrollment numbers, they'd be like, oh, finally, I finally, you know, fit, like finished. And then they would go off trying to find another trial. So uh, I kind of took that as like, that's the wrong way to look at it. Because if you are a, you know, if you are a, um, you know, if you're a clinical research site, any one of these companies, you know, these are billion and trillion dollar companies. And if you are the preferred provider to one of them, they can keep you busy with, you know, with plenty of business. And so that kind of gives you the economic engine that you need in order to keep your site going and for you to, you know, keep your patients happy and keep your, your staff happy. Uh, so it's, it's kind of a matter of really, really, uh, really investing in relationships with sponsors and, and keeping, uh, and keeping, uh, you know, and, and, uh, you know, keeping those relationships warm and keeping, I think keeping your word, like what you promised to enroll really is the bottom line. 
I'll yeah. Go 10, try to get close to 10. You know, I think yeah. within standard deviation of two, maybe. Yeah. Um, uh, don't promise 30 and then bring two. Right. Uh, I think that's a good way to get looked over next for the next trial, especially yeah. when these big pharma. One of the other things I noticed was um, what makes it easier is after you get your first study, like if you get a big pharma, they'll make you go into SIP, Shared Investigator Portal, which I hate. Yeah. But, uh, once you set up a profile, I can't stand that website. We have, God bless her heart, Katie left before her was Daisy. They were the like the SIP people. But right. um, I mean, I kid you not, Dave, I went on that website once. I was going to get a seizure. The thing started having like strobe lights. <laughs> yeah. I thought I was in a rave, man. And then I was like, I, no, this is too much right now. Yeah. Let's figure this out. But once we got in there, we started getting Big Pharma approaching us because that's a shared the shared in the SIP, the S is yeah. shared. The big pharma share the info with yeah. the other big pharma. So then you start getting approached by other pharma and say, hey, yeah. we notice you do studies. And so that's kind of a cool thing. Um, it's not really relationship, but it, it takes yeah. that initial relationship to get uh, your first study. Another mistake I see most site owners make is they are very much uh, eat what we catch and they don't have a mechanism of scaling. Mm -hmm. uh, so meaning there's a difference between a plumber who goes out and maybe only has one assistant, but that assistant goes with him on calls and yeah, he or she can only do the business they're currently working on. And then mm -hmm. when they're done, yeah. now they would need another client. Yeah. And there's a lot of sites that operate that way too. Like, oh, I don't need this many staff. It's yeah. just me. And then when the study ends, then we'll go scramble for another study. And I think that's where the spams come in too. Like, yeah. hey, we are such and such, the copy and paste. We're just pray and spray, hopefully get something yeah. as opposed to investing a little bit into building your system. Yeah. Have, be, you being able to step out and go hunt while your staff are executing on the studies. I think there are two classes of sites out there. And it can be various sizes, but one are built to scale and the other ones are built to just eat what they catch. It's very, very pragmatic, very primitive, but for some people it works. And if, if that's what works and that's, that's good for them. But I, I think there is more, I think they're leaving a lot on the table and yeah. it's riskier too, in my opinion. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I think that like I've had, I put together something of a concept and I've, I've followed this model but uh, most sites that I've started, there's generally three owners and those three have different roles and responsibilities that are based upon what you're describing. And so, uh, you know, instead of uh, like generally I fill the role of business development and the business to business international global relations. Right. And then there's somebody that's there to manage and maintain and market locally, like patient recruitment, uh, finding and identifying additional investigators. Uh, and then there's somebody that's involved in the clinical operations piece. And so if all three of you are working well, and I'm not saying that this is a, like, this is good to get something off the ground. There's definitely some challenges that happen like down the road, but if what your challenge is, is like eating what you catch and that's it. Um, you know, I found that, that this is kind of a way to at least get over that because 
instead of getting a study, doing the work, and then scrambling for another study when enrollment closes. Uh, this way, you always have somebody looking ahead saying, okay, this study closes in six months. What, what is our staff going to be doing in six months? So I've got to get a pipeline. I've got to get something else there, right? And then instead of the operations person going around handing out flyers at physicians offices, you've got somebody else regularly doing that, proactively doing that. And then the operations person can just make sure things run smoothly in the site. So, you know, it's easier said than done, but I found that that is an actual, like that is actually a very effective way to, to, uh, to start a clinical research site and scale it rapidly. It's not a bad way to streamline it. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's one of the reasons why we wanted to do the SOS. There's so many ways to, scale this right mm -hmm. like that's one method there's other methods of specializing as far as just like the amcs have specialists right like yep. data entry i don't like that route because i feel like it uh is unfair to the staff in a way yeah um but there there's ways to also specialize among specialties too like you are team derm your team cardio we're not to the point where we can do that but it's something i'm I have in my head it's living rent free there for quite some time <laughs> right <laughs> but there's so many ways to do it i think the point is just trying and seeing what works and this is where networking with others uh comes comes in handy because i'll get an idea from you or lee or brad or fox or chris and you know something hey, i haven't thought about that maybe yeah. that's that's the right way to go does it align with my personal philosophy because that's very important too if it doesn't, I don't necessarily want to do it because I have personal compass inside, you know, uh, but others, maybe it does align with your with your personal philosophy. And then you can go ahead and try to experiment um, yeah. doing clinical trials on your clinical trial company, a split sure. test, a B test. Yeah. And I think uh, another item in order to make sure those things work, uh, you want to establish a routine. Like what is what is your daily habits look like? Um, and something that has worked for me, and I think it probably works for a lot of other people, is that is that I I just do time blocking within my schedule, and I'll have I'll block off Fridays, for instance, and like Friday it's it's dedicated to networking. You know, I don't have I'm not trying to push any agendas forward. I'm not trying to um, to accomplish any specific projects. It, it's like the entire week I'm just regularly in, you know, in communication with various people. And then, you know, I put some time Friday into thinking, okay, what am I going to do next Friday? And what calls do I have scheduled for this Friday? Uh, and many of those could be reaching out to another CTA. Fridays for you is now, that's not hypothetical. That's something you actually do. Fridays for you is. So, yeah. So, um, and it's, it's uh, dynamic as well. I could say at first it was like half of the week was doing that. But it's like that's such an important part because a lot of what I've been a lot of my my day has been uh, has like I've had to outsource a lot of what I do to others. And so, uh, you know, this is generally a good rule of how to manage your schedule is that you, you you generally outsource and take on higher and better uses for your time up until a certain point. But you can't you can't um, you can't uh, you can't ever say, OK, I know enough people now I'm not going to. Uh, to continue to do networking. So as as of now, I block out four hours a day on, on Friday to network. So, um, so that's my uh, that's that's my my schedule. I don't limit it to that. Like I'll uh, I will. I like that. Uh, I know. like that uh, outsource. I also do similar outsource um, to focus on the higher higher value tasks. 
However, and this is where site ownership is part science, part art. Yeah. There is a time I actually told Katie who just left. Um, she's going to be SOS too, by the way. And now she's in charge of training other coordinators. Yeah. I told her, look, Katie, not everyone learns. Not everyone has your learning style. And I know yours is like efficient. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it makes more sense to not be efficient, at least temporarily, in order to drive home a message or create an outcome that you want. Like sometimes the outcome is in the less efficient route. So sometimes it does make sense to not take on those higher value tasks. For example, a very low value task is driving a patient or picking up dry ice or drawing blood. But as a site director, if my staff, this for morale, I would say everyone watching can argue that having high staff morale is very high value, right? Yeah. If they see me in there in someone's vein, because everyone's busy and I'm doing it. Yeah. That does something for the morale. Like, oh, Dan's actually doing it. Like he's buying dry ice. Does, you know, he's, he's on our side. That's a low value task I'm doing, but it has a high value impact in the greater scheme of things. So this is why it's like, you got to balance. Everything is like art science. You got to trust your gut to some level. Like you're not going to find all the answers in a book. Your staff's all different. Maybe they value things differently than you do. This yeah. is why it's so challenging. Yeah. And I mean, taking that, uh, taking that humility, like, right. I mean, if you're doing blood draws and you're, uh, you, know, uh, you know, getting dry ice and doing things like that in order to make your staff members, uh, you know, make their lives easier. It's important to, to look at them and say, okay, I might be the boss, but you are where I was when you, when I was your age and, you know, you'll probably be where I am now. And you know, it's you know when you're my age. So uh, taking you know taking that or or beyond that, you know, yeah. uh, taking that level of humility and not looking down at people um, yeah. is I think really key. And what's uh, there there was a, an interesting situation I had uh, recently with an, with uh, a site that we had uh, uh, we were tooling up for running a uh, like a a COVID flu bivalent vaccine trial, right? And so those are the, the enrollment was three weeks and, you know, there was thousands of patients to be enrolled. There was maybe a hundred sites or something like that. So we were like, okay, this is going to be one of these rushes to enroll a bunch of patients. And we're, we're aiming for, you know, dozens, if not, you know, we have dozens of patients every single week, you know, hopefully we'll screen like 10 per day. So uh, there was a, an important call that, you know, that, that we made, and this is like looking for the long-term win, uh, in, instead of the short-term win, and you know, in the hierarchy of clinical research positions, generally like unblinded coordinator roles, like a verifier, or like those tend to be, uh, those tend to be low. Like you need a, a different skill set. You don't need as much time in the saddle learning things to do an unblinded role. But um, what we found is that we actually, um, uh, at the time, we didn't have a unblinded coordinator that could fulfill those that could fulfill like the lead coordinator role. And so what we ultimately decided to do is we took one of our Delta force level study managers and said, for this trial, you get to be an unblinded coordinator. And the ultimate goal at the end of the day is that we want you to train the, like 
our two unblinded coordinators so that they can be lead unblinded coordinators. And what, what happened is that, you know, we, we take this high value person that's usually doing, doing things like tasks that, you know, require a lot more experience to, to do these tasks. And what we had at the end of this month is that we had, we had, we had unblinded coordinators that now could handle the lead coordinator role. So mm-hmm. we took a short-term loss for a long-term win for the business and for the site. Yeah. So, um, so, and on so, paper, like nine out of 10 consultants, if you had McKinsey consultants or whatever, they would say, oh, that's yeah. David, like, that's not a good idea. We yeah. recommend you do this other thing. Uh, yeah. But that's a perfect example. Like, and that's where entrepreneurship is. Uh, you've got to trust your gut too. Um, yeah. Reputation, here's a question. Reputation is key. How do you balance maintaining a strong and positive reputation without being taken advantage of as a site administrator? Hmm. Gosh, I'd love a couple of examples to uh, for that, but um, yeah, because you could be taken advantage like as by your employees or by your sponsors or like in what context. But maybe just pick one that stands out to you. What comes to mind for me is, and I don't know if I have a, a solution for this, but uh, you know, in the in the budget negotiation world, uh, it really depends on the study. And sometimes you're really over a barrel when it comes to these vaccine trials where the study is so valuable to you, the deadline is coming very, very quickly. And then you've got somebody who does not care on the other side of the, you know, the, the email uh, <laughs> chain. Um, and they're, they don't respond quickly. And so it's, there's, there's so much temptation to start, you know, to start um, like to just, you know, compromise on, on your value and, and to, you know, just to kind of get something, uh, just to get a, a deal done and get, you know, get that budget finalized so that you can all sign the CTA and your staff can get working on it. I don't know if I have a good example of that other than, other than saying, like, I think Daniel Fox is brilliant <laughs> at that item. And wow. so finding people yeah. that know more than I do has been what has been, has, has worked for me. Yeah. I had an example like this recently. Um, I've, I've been saying that sites are the true patient advocates. So we had a study that enrollment was met, right? Like the sponsor had no interest whether patients randomized anymore, but they said any patient still in screening will allow them to randomize, right? So we had, there was like a technicality on an x-ray. Yeah. And the vendor, it wasn't the sponsor, the vendor said no. And I, I don't think the vendor even knew about the enrollment. They're just doing their job. But they said, no, the x-ray needs to be redone. And then I said, well, if it's redone, it's going to put the patient out of window. And then the sponsor already told me they don't want out of window randos. Anymore. Yeah. So we're throwing away like a good patient because of an exploratory endpoint. Like the x-ray was still able to have a diagnosis from it. They just didn't get exploratory endpoints. So I actually escalated it to the sponsor. And my argument was, look, we're patient advocates. Like this patient shouldn't suffer because of a technicality. I know you guys don't need it, but I'm pushing for this. It was a series of emails and phone calls. And finally we got, we got allowed to randomize the patient, but I had to like go fight for it. And was I worried about our reputation? Like a little bit, like I didn't want to piss off the sponsor. I wanted to get study back um, at some point and it was a risk, but I had to fight for that patient because at the end of the day, like I didn't feel right 
about the patient having to suffer yeah. uh, because of a technicality. Like that's the patient's first and only maybe experience with a clinical trial. So I brought this all up to the sponsor and they, I guess yeah. they got it. So <laughs> the patient got in, but okay. it's like an employee or somebody who maybe wasn't empowered or doesn't want to step on toes. Like, Oh, if I approach the sponsor, I might get fired. Yeah. If it backfires, you yeah. can see how this, like uh, maybe every day, these kind of things happen where patients fall through the cracks because people are worried about their reputation too much. Yeah. And I think there's, there's a, a, a level of like stewardship and, and I guess ownership that we have to have as site directors to empower our staff to, yeah. fight the patient like fight for the patient this is first principles yeah. type of stuff like what are we here for we're here to get patients access to trial so yeah that's my example but there's so many like that man that and i, I think that the people that are doing what we do like they're we fit into a very uh narrow personality type like a lot of people have the same type of uh people pleasing approval seeking tendencies and at least for me I had to, un I don't want to say unlearn because I, I'm still somebody that, you know, is I'm always looking for a win-win situation. Like, you know, if you have some sort of dispute with, with another person, I'm always looking for the win-win. I'm not looking to strong arm or to like, you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, you know, it makes, you know, embarrass somebody or a sponsor or whatever. But I find with, with a lot of, with a lot of people, um, uh, there isn't that pushback because there's this fear of consequences and there's a, a, a there's a general discomfort with being assertive. Uh, and at least for me in my own, in my own career, I had to, I had to learn how to be assertive and it comes unnatural to me. But as I've started putting, like when I started putting that into practice, like, you know, I began getting promoted and I began, uh, earning more income and I began having additional levels of self-confidence. And so this is something, and, you know, funny or not, I just had a, uh, an annual review with a, with a employee of mine earlier this afternoon. And I brought this up and I put it this way. I'm like, you know, we're kind of cut from the same cloth. I went through the same personal development journey that I want to suggest and, you know, and empower you to do as well. Um, and I think that's really where, you know, that's really where things, um, you know, really can take off and you can be an advocate for your employees by helping them develop this skill set and this ability to, uh, to continue to grow in their career. Yeah. Uh, that's my, that's, that's what I, I think has been uh, made a huge difference for me. And, you know, I want to imp imprint that onto my employees as well. And if, if, it goes beyond you and the company, right? It's like when the employees believe that you are actually on their side, even if yeah. it means they are no longer with you at some point. Yeah. While they are with you, they'll, they tend to go harder um, as far as effort, attitude, and all those good things that make our lives easier. Yeah. As site directors uh, slash site owners. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, this is interesting stuff. Do you feel like you're prepared now for this panel SOS or? You have like enough nuggets like in your back pocket to be able to get some out or we're going to surprise people, I think, on the panel SOS with some cool stuff. Yeah, well, this has been a, a you know, a lifetime accomplishment of mine. Uh, four years ago, I'm like, you know, one of these days I'm going to be on Dan Sparrow's podcast. Is this the first time? This is the first time. Yeah, this is our first podcast, Dave. 
I think we've talked about it before, but like just general wow. busyness, you know. OMG, man. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's amazing. That this is our first one. I have to fact check that real quick, but um maybe you're right. This yeah. is amazing. It's been a long time coming. And um I'm glad you're you you were unanimously selected by like the people deciding who's gonna speak. Yeah. Um, um you were brought up like by myself, by Fox, Chris, probably a few others like mentioned you on this one, industry relations, because in only four years as a site owner, you've been you've met so many people, man. Like uh, and you've you've built five sites. Uh, which is commendable and it's saying a lot not bad for an academic <laughs> yeah. well I, the only thing i'd correct you is that and this is really important important uh, you said and i appreciate everything you said you built five sites and i'm like you the, this is what's you know what's really important is like giving credit to other people and i mean there's a um, I mean, my fir very first employee, I still have her on, you know, on, on staff. I guess I can't say I have her on staff, but, uh, you know, as her as a contract employee. And uh, she works for you. Yes, that's right. So I have to say that, uh, you know, the people that I've worked with and the people that I've met in this industry have just been extraordinary. Uh, and I've learned more from them than I've been able to, to, to teach from them. And so, uh, and you know, not no man is an island, right? So you have to, uh, you have to, uh, like I can only I can only direct people and capital at opportunities, but I can't really make everything happen. So I have to rely on good people to to uh, to make stuff work. Of course, but you also have to put energy into the system so that entropy doesn't take over. Exactly. Your force must be stronger than entropy. <laughs> exactly. Not easy to do, man. You can't be sleeping and get that done either. I love it. The second law of thermodynamics. If you think about it, man, it applies to everything. Yeah. Yeah. It's underrated law. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> People yeah. think about outer space when they think about that. I think about you. Yeah. If I don't talk to you for like a year, we forget each other, man. Like, yeah. who is this guy? So I got to put in work to make sure I keep keep a track of what's going on. I make sure I'm giving yeah. more than I'm receiving, like, and then it'll come back. That's that's that requires energy. Yeah. And there's only so much time, right? With the second law of thermodynamics in an open system, which is the universe, right? Everything's going towards entropy. It's like, you know, it's just coming. Time marches on. But in a closed system, which is yours and my business, you know, a relationship. Like that is something where you can input more energy and have more order at the end of the day than, you know, than uh, the universe at large. That's where it becomes beautiful. That's the process of creation and yeah. uh, going from zero to one and all that stuff. So thank you so much, David. Look, if you've been listening or watching, David's LinkedIn is underneath this video. His LinkedIn probably went from several hundred to several thousand in like two years or i mean you've been now you've been really practicing what you preach like you're yeah you know, i mean i've had a thousand or more before that but i probably doubled the number so there you go yeah and that's me through meaningful relationships i haven't met anyone that has come across you that has had anything negative to say which is not so easy to do i can give you a few references <laughs> Okay. Okay. <laughs> Let's go, man. But uh, 
David, thank you so much. We're looking forward to SOS. You're going to be on the panel on industry relations, the last panel before the after party. It's <laughs> on relationships and then something about alcohol and networking just kind of okay. lubricates the process, like a little alcohol, and then it just becomes easier to network. Awesome. Yeah, right. so I like for Jameson Neat myself. Ah, okay. Yeah, Jameson Neat. Yeah, I know Joe Dustin, who's there. Shout out to Joe. He's a huge whiskey advocate. And All right. uh, he's been telling me about some of the stuff he's got um, okay. in mind. So looking forward to this after party. And SOS, last day to get your tickets. Go now. Don't complain later. It's not, I don't even know how to log into the website. Even if I wanted to, I couldn't. And then, God forbid, I have to put you on the Google Sheets. I don't know how to log in. All right, so you can't get in. You have to go get your tickets, and then you only have one day left, so you might as well go now. Meet Dave. Meet a bunch of other people there. Thank you so much, Dave, for coming on. Everybody go connect with David right now. Catch you guys later. Bye-bye.